Well, good morning. Thank you for showing up this Sunday morning, the eight of us that decided to come to church the week after Christmas. It's great to see all of you. I don't mean that in any derogatory way. I'm thankful you're here. Really, I am. Um, It's because you found out a fellow was preaching, wasn't it? Wasn't it? That's why all these other people, you were like, yeah, we want to see this guy. Well, good morning. My name is Andrew Clausen, and um, I am one of the pastoral fellows here at Christ Community. And um, one of the blessings of preaching for your first time at any campus is you get to introduce yourself and your family. So I'm going to spend some time doing that. I'm going to walk you through my entire life in five minutes, which is exciting. And I have some some photos and get to do that um, here. Well, um, I'm from Omaha, Nebraska. And so, um, yeah, grew up and was raised in Omaha. Um, My parents um, were divorced when I was young, so I lived most of my life with my mom and with my brother, um, and then kind of, you know, grew up in the church, right? So I'm I'm a, you know, recovering Presbyterian, so if you see my hands moving as I preach, it's simply out of rebellion to my heritage. Um, (laughs) Just kidding again. I love Presbyterians. I'm still Presbyterian in one sense. But that being said, um, yeah, grew up in the church and just was kind of like the churchy kid, right? I did everything churchy, and then I loved going to everything that the church was doing. And um, by the time I hit high school, though, there, there kind of this, I started living this double life. I started living into, um, yeah, a life that was, in, in one sense, like during the week, I was kind of the church kid. I did everything that the churchy kid did. But then on the weekends, I, I fell into this life of just partying and wanting to party and, and be cool and popular. Um, and then I, I went off to, um, to college um, at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Any Huskers out there? Okay. <laughs> obviously not. There are obviously no Huskers in the room. I'll, I'll check second service. Um, but yeah, anyways, so I went to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln um, and found that, at, believe it or not, when you go to college, most, popular, you know, most public schools, there's only more opportunities to party. Like, it was weird. And so, you know, I lived into that even more. And then, um, strangely enough, um, as I was um, driving home from a friend's wedding my senior year of college, I just so happened to take my youth Bible. It was dusty. It was unused. I just so happened to take my, my youth Bible, and I was reading it on the drive home. My friend's dad was driving. I wasn't driving and reading. That'd be terrible. Um, but I was reading my youth Bible, and I got to the passage in Luke 15, the prodigal son. And I realized that, um, that I had been sinful my entire life, but that God's forgiveness was greater than my sin. And at that point, Christ changed my heart and, um, and brought me into his fold. He, uh, he made my heart new and alive. So since that point, everything's been different. Um, I went back to my home church after graduating about a semester later. Um, that's where I met my wife, Greer. That's where we started dating. We got engaged and then got married. Yep, okay, there she is. This was actually right after we got engaged. It was like four degrees in that photo, and we're really happy. That shows how excited we were to be engaged. Um, and so, and, and Greer and I met and dated in Omaha. We got married in Omaha in 2008. We've been married now for four years. Um, there's our wedding day. That is exciting as well. Just as excited, not near as cold. Um, and so, and it was about seven months into marriage to my beautiful wife. We found out that we were pregnant with our first son, and, um, which was a huge surprise. How many of you out there, you know, were really surprised to have your first child? No, just us. Okay, we were. We were surprised. We weren't expecting to. Okay, thank you. Owning up to it. And, and, and so seven months into marriage, we're preparing for seminary, and we find out we're pregnant, which is a blessing, which is a, a heritage from the Lord. And um, our first semester of, of, of seminary, uh, we have Owen, our son, who's now three years old. I think we have a photo. Look at that guy. You can go, aw. It's okay. 
That's right. This is all helpful, right? Because then at some point when I say something you don't like, you'll have less, you know, aversion to me. And, and so, you know, we have Owen our first semester in seminary, and it was just, you know, it was crazy. You know, I'm, I'm actually studying Greek as I'm being a father, if that's possible. I don't know what was actually happening there. But seminary was just a great time. It was a blessing for our family. We got through it. We went through kind of the snowpocalypse. I think we have a, a photo of snowpocalypse, which was a couple of years ago. Owen sitting on like eight feet of snow, and then the snow all melted, and he made a snowman. Um, <laughs> that's a good one, too. And he grew up, and um, yeah, so we had Owen in seminary, and as we were in seminary at Trinity, we uh, came to know about Christ Community Church, and um, we applied for the fellowship here, and got to meet Kevin, and JT, and John, and, um, and by God's grace, we're here now. We get to serve alongside you, and um, we, are, we are very thankful for that. We, we, we packed up our bags, and we moved here. I think I have a photo of that. I want to make sure I keep in line with the photos. We moved here from, from Illinois, and now we're Kansans, right? Rock Chalk Jayhawk. Okay. <laughs> crying out loud. Well, so that being said, we're here now at Christ Community, and um, I'm one of the pastors. There's Owen with our dog. Um, and so um, we're here on staff now um, at Christ Community, one of the pastoral fellows, and I get, I, I'm kind of focused here at Leewood. So please, afterwards, please let me, let me introduce myself to you. I would love to get to know more of you. I've gotten to know some of you over the past seven months. I'd like to get to know more of you. Why don't I open with a word of prayer before we actually jump into God's word this morning. Father, we praise you for uh, your word, which informs, which informs our world. As, as believers, Lord, push us to constantly come back to what your word has said and how it it moves us to a, a new understanding of reality, a deeper understanding of reality. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our ears, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, I pray in this time that your spirit would bless us with eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of our holiday traditions every Christmas is we, for some reason, we watch a lot of movies. I'm sure a lot of you are kind of the same way, watching lots of movies over Christmas break. Regardless of whether or not you actually kind of have a Christmas break, it seems like most of us watch more movies, and, and we're that way. Last year, we watched all, like, 34 Harry Potter movies in the course of, like, two weeks. I mean, it was just marathon time. It was great, um, because I didn't have to read those 900-page books and, and, and all the craziness that is therein. Um, and, and a couple of years ago, we watched Band of Brothers. Do you know this HBO miniseries, Band of Brothers? It's excellent. A lot of men are shaking their heads. They're like, yes, that is my favorite movie. It's probably my favorite movie or miniseries, whatever you want to call it. And Band of Brothers is this, this, this miniseries that kind of follows this one group of American soldiers throughout America's, um, the U.S.'s kind of work in World War II. And it's really well done. You know, Tom Hanks kind of put it together with some other people. It's really well done. So imagine with me, it's 1945, and you're in the foxhole that you have just moved for the 15th time in as many days. Bullets are flying past your head. Shells are falling from the sky. The replacements that are coming into camp look just as fatigued as you are. Things aren't looking good for you right now. Now, over the, the, the noise that is, that is your life, you hear the company messenger come to you and say, you've got a letter from home. You know, in the trenches, a letter from home is always welcome, right? 
because it gives us this, this understanding of, of the way life was and hopefully the way life will be in the future. And so you read the letter and after finding out what's going on at home from your mom, she tells you, you know, the papers are saying this thing's won. The papers and the press are claiming that this, the, the strategic battle has been won. The war is, is almost or basically over in one sense. Meanwhile, you can't get past the fact that there are still bullets flying. Your friends are still dying. Things don't look the way your mom has just said. And so you can understand the skepticism in your own heart as you read this, where your experience doesn't seem to match up with what she's said. Well, our text this morning addresses a very similar issue in regards to the Christian life. When trials of suffering, when temptations to sin cloud our life, it's easy for us to look at what's happening and say, God, why have you said what you've said? It doesn't seem to match up. It doesn't seem to match up. But our text this morning confronts us head on, and it shows us that in the trial of life, that God is for us. In the trial of life, God is for us forever. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 8, we're going to pick up kind of where we've been in this series, and I'll I'll set up the text a little bit before I actually read. Uh, Where we've been so far is we're in this series called The Conspiracy of Love, and and what we're looking at is, is how Romans 8 helps us understand the story behind the Christmas story, the story that our, our, our nativity miniatures can't totally capture. Because as you, as you peel back the curtain and see that story behind the story, you see that, that the incarnation, that Jesus' coming is actually one scene in an unfolding drama of God's redemptive history. In our text this morning, Romans eight thirty one to 39 we actually see kind of this, this, this scene of a courtroom. The language used is highly legal, and, and the structure of the text comes to us kind of in, in formal questions, right? It looks like somebody's actually, you know, put us on the, on the chair, and they're, they're asking us these questions, trying to help us understand what's going on, or I should say, trying to understand what's going on. And so as we do that, why don't we start in our text, verse 31. This is Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Well, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We see here in this, these first four verses, this picture of who God is and who Jesus is. And Paul's trying to, to build the Romans' confidence in that direction, towards who God is and what he's done through Jesus. So the first question he asks is, who can be against us? He says there in verse 31, Verse 31, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? So he assumes the first part to be true to answer his own question. Who can be against us? Well, God is for us. This this picture being painted is one of, of God as an advocate on our behalf. God as an advocate for us. He's on our side. 
No, he's come, he's come to be our great lawyer, if you will, to defend us. That's the picture that Paul's painting here. Further, he's painting God as a gracious advocate. Look in verse 32. He says, he says, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's again assuming the grace of God in the giving of Jesus and then saying, won't he also give us everything graciously? Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This last week, or I'm sorry, actually two weeks ago, I was, I was prepping for this, mar- uh, this message, this marriage. I was prepping for this marriage. I was prepping for this message, and I was at Panera, and um, a, a grandmother and a little girl came, and they sat down at a table next to me, and, you know, they're eating their treat, and, and they're having this wonderful Christmas day, um, Christmas preparation day, and they sat down, and they're looking at the Toys R Us advertisement, right? And the little girl recognized this word. This word. She could have been five or six, maybe four. I don't, I don't know. Um, and she recognized this word free. And she said, Grandma, Grandma, can we go get this? It's free. You know, like you could feel the anticipation. I'm like sitting right next to them like, oh gosh, holy cow. And the grandma definitively, you know, like quickly shuts it down and says, nothing is free. Sure enough, the ad actually said that if you buy one thing, you get another thing free. And so in one sense, the grandma was right, right? Nothing's free. This wasn't even free. And though we all know that nothing's free, right? There's no such thing as a free lunch. We, can, we, we, we are constantly confronted in the Bible by a God who offers his grace, who offers salvation freely. No strings attached. No buy one, get one. Salvation is free. His legal charges are free of charge. His legal defense is free of charge. You know, he works pro bono. All the lawyers just were like, oh gosh, don't say that word, you know? But that's the truth. That this salvation, this advocacy is free of charge. And that's what we see here. Well, the second question that Paul raises is who can accuse us? Or who can condemn us? He's already showed us that God is this this gracious advocate. And then he says, who can accuse us or condemn us? Kind of two questions, two sides of the same coin, if you will. And then he answers, God, our justifying judge, is for us. It says there in verse 33, who is to condemn? And in verse 34, or I'm sorry, 34, who is to condemn? Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against us. God is the one who has declared us righteous. That's what justification means. He has declared us righteous. He's looked at us, those who believe, and declared us righteous. So instead of seeing our sin and our shame and our guilt, he declares us righteous. But why? Because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, God can look at us and declare us righteous. Well, that doesn't seem to make sense. I think in one part, it's hard for us to understand that because we're blamers, right? We like to kind of look at other people for all our sin. We like to try to push our sin off on other people. It's not really our fault. It's someone else's. This last week, we were um, were putting my son Owen down, that beautiful child you saw, for a nap, and, uh, and he wasn't sleeping for whatever reason. He wasn't sleeping. We heard him kind of, you know, jumping around in bed and causing a ruckus, doing whatever he does in there. And uh, so I went in there. I went into his room, and I said, Owen, what are you doing? You know, what, what's going on? Are you okay? And, and you'll never believe what he said. He's three years old, okay? You'll never believe what he said. He goes, the baby, this is verbatim, the baby in mommy's belly is making my tummy hook. 
my three-year-old son was blaming my unborn daughter of his disobedience. Literally, my, 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 this little ankle biter that I brought into this world was blaming my unborn daughter for his disobedience. She's 100% innocent. But there's a truth here that I think we all can empathize with. But in the gospel, Jesus actually takes our sin. The one who is, who is perfectly innocent. The one who is perfectly blameless. The one who has done nothing wrong yearns for our sin and our shame and our guilt and he takes it upon himself. He takes it to the cross that we might be justified, that we might be declared righteous. So when the father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus because of our belief in him. This is the good news of the gospel. We've seen here in verses 31 to 34 that God is for us. God is for those who believe. Now, Paul is writing to a group of Christians in Rome who have, who have received a lot of kind of opposition to the gospel, okay? Around this time, there was a, a Roman emperor who had exiled and expelled lots of the Jews out of Rome. And so there was this mounting kind of political tension towards those who were associated with Judaism, which would include Christians because the gospel generally went to synagogues first, Right? As Paul was planting churches, he would usually go to synagogues because people already had a framework for what the Bible was saying. So there was this mounting political tension. Further, as those Jews who had left came back in over time to the Gentile churches and became Christians, they were, trying to, they were struggling to understand how you could be a Jew and a Christian at the same time. Because the Jews believed that you had to follow the law. And so there was this, this, this inside conflict as well, this insider conflict. Do, do we as Christians follow the law or do we not? You know, this is a lot of Paul's writing. You'll see it a lot in Galatians. And so what happened is there was this opposition outside. There was this opposition inside the church. And Paul is assuming that here in these four verses, right? He says there are people coming against the church. There are people condemning and accusing Christians. And so Paul is, is recognizing those things. Now, I understand most of us probably don't live in a world where we, where we see lots of, of direct opposition towards us or our faith. You know, we live in a society that's built around kind of freedom of religion. But we can't overlook the fact that, that Christianity is, is increasingly less um, encouraged. We can't, we, can't, we can't look past the fact that it's becoming harder and harder to be a Christian in our country. And in no way am I trying to get like hyper-political here, but that's the truth. And so what we see here is this picture of people getting pushed back for their faith. Well, maybe for you, our opposition, or maybe for us, our opposition looks different. Maybe it was this last week with Christmas. Maybe at Christmas you wanted to kind of read your Bible with your kids and some other family members didn't want to open the Bible. That's, why, would, why, would, why would you impose your beliefs on us? Maybe you wanted to do certain things on Christmas that are traditions, but that really point to Christ, you know, the, the reason for the season. Another family member said, no, we don't want to do that. Maybe it's, you know, at college. Maybe it's that, that neighbor down the hall or even your, your roommate in the dorm where you befriended them, you got to know them, and then as you started to bring up Jesus once in a while, they actually cut you out of that group. They stopped talking to you. They started to push you out of what, what was kind of your social group at that time. You know, maybe it's your boss or a coworker who um, can't understand why you would give money at the end of the year 
to a charitable organization who helps people or kids in another country. Maybe that's what this looks like for you these days because we don't experience the exact same opposition that these Christians were at that time. Maybe you don't feel the the opposition from others. Maybe you feel kind of this guilt and condemnation from God himself. Maybe you feel like God's watchful eyes are always looking over your shoulder, waiting for you to want that iPad that your family member got and you didn't, right? I mean, we would, be, we would be lying if we said we didn't feel like God was waiting for us to slip in some sense. I know I struggle with this for sure. We kind of had this, have this idea that, that God is like Santa, right? The Santa God, you know? He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's... That's right. And so even after salvation, we recognize or we think, we think that our condemnation is still bound up with whether or not our name is on the naughty or the nice list. We think of God as the Santa who's keeping a list. And yet, God is in no way more pleased. Maybe I should say it this way. God is as pleased with us now as he will be in eternity. Because God's pleasure in us is not bound up with anything we do, but with, he, with what he has done in his son Jesus. God's pleasure in us is bound up with Christ on a cross. Does that demotivate our obedience? Absolutely not. It actually motivates our obedience because our obedience then becomes an overflow of our joyous heart for a graceful savior instead of divine appeasement. It motivates in a way that points back to the gospel, not towards the law. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus is willing to take your sin and give you his righteousness. If you do not consider yourself a believer in Jesus, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Christ, you can now and all you have to do is believe. There is nothing else you can do but believe that Jesus has taken your sin. We've seen here in these first four verses that God is for us. Now why don't we turn to verse 35, verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This last question that Paul asks is who or what can separate us from Christ's love? And Paul's resounding answer is nothing. God is for us forever. God loves us forever. His love is unbreakable. It's unending. It's forever. And so as he asks this question, he quotes from Psalm 44 there. 
And this psalm is one where, where God's people are crying out to him because God had been mighty with their forefathers and, and he had come through in a way that, that, that was, you know, salvific, right? He had saved their forefathers. And yet at this point in time in Psalm 44 being written, he had grown inactive, it seemed. And so they're crying out to him to come and to save them because they were experiencing this great suffering. Now, Paul's list is, is borderline exhaustive. And just in case, he kind of throws in the, the kitchen sink clause. You see it there in, in verse 39. Nor anything else in all creation, right? In case he left anything out, he throws in the kitchen sink as well. Anything else in all creation, nothing can remove, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God's love conquers all things for those who love him. Well, what if I'm divorced? What if I've been divorced? No, no. What if uh, my boss put me between a moral rock and a hard place? You know, what if I did, what if I made the wrong decision in that place? No, nothing. What if I actually, um, you know, went to college and, and had that weekend where I did exactly what I told myself I wouldn't do? No. What we see here is this picture of a God who's willing to do whatever it takes to love his people into eternity. And nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, let me be extremely clear. This unending, unbreakable love is only for those who believe. This love is not for those who don't believe. This isn't God's creative love that Paul is talking about. This is God's redemptive love. But yet again, all you have to do is believe if you don't. All we can do is believe. We can do nothing to gain our salvation. What we've seen here in verses 35 to 39 is that God is for us forever through unbreakable love. So Paul is writing this book to this group of Romans and uh, this Roman church. And this Roman church is experiencing this suffering. That's why he quotes from Psalm 44. They're experiencing hardship and suffering and it's, they don't know what's going on and they're starting to question, is God really here? Is God really for us? Or, or has God's love for us broken? That's why he quotes from Psalm 44. And I think if we're honest, I know at least if I'm honest, I feel the exact same way. When things get hard, I question if God is there too. Do you? I know when, when, the, when the going gets tough, I've wondered if God's already gotten going. I know that when things aren't easy, that I question what's really going on in this world. And what's hard is our experiences help us understand reality. But what we see in this text and what the Holy Spirit, I think, is trying to help us understand is that God's word informs our understanding of reality first, not our experiences this idea of suffering equaling no love. <laughs> Sorry, I just read right off here. That wasn't helpful. So that being said, if God is really for us, how do we understand this reality where sin is still prevalent in our lives, right? That was Romans 7 that Paul works out. Well, I, I see two problems with this understanding where our experiences determine our, our reality. The first is our experiences cloud our understanding of suffering and the second is our experiences cloud our understanding of God's love. The first is our, our understanding of suffering. You know, as Americans, 
You know, we're kind of born with this golden ticket. I once heard Warren Buffett say, we're born, as, as Americans, we're born with this golden ticket. Because we're born into relative affluence in the grand scheme of things. And while that's in no way a bad thing, that is a blessing. It, it determines how we understand things. And so our framework for understanding reality rarely includes suffering, right? We think suffering is for poor people. We oftentimes think that suffering is for those who deserve it. Suffering isn't for the righteous. And yet, God's word has to inform our understanding of suffering. God's word understands suffering as an an inevitable part of the fall. Of a fallen world, suffering is going to be present. Because suffering is present where sin is present. And yet, in this text, Paul, or, or more importantly, the Holy Spirit, is hoping that we see that even in suffering... He says, in these things, that is, in suffering, in verse 37, we can be more than conquerors. We can be hyper-conquerors. We can be super-conquerors, is what the language is getting at, through those things. So what does that mean? Well, I think it means this. Jesus himself, his greatest act of obedience was through suffering. His trial ended on a cross his day of suffering. And so, in one sense, suffering actually helps us understand Jesus, come closer to Jesus. Now, I know that that is, you know, I have to qualify that statement because I'm not saying go running for suffering, go looking for it, you know. But that being said, Jesus' greatest act of obedience was through suffering. The second thing is we don't have a biblical understanding of God's love. We live in a society where divorce, adultery, and, and even just, just bad marriages are everywhere, it seems like. And while that might not be us, that might not be us, it would be hard to find one person in this entire room who wasn't directly affected by one of those things. As I said earlier, my parents were divorced when I was three. I come from a family of four with two dads and two moms. My parents divorced when I was three. They both remarried. They both had one child each and then divorced again. So when I hear that God's love for me is unbreakable, is unending, you know, I almost laugh because my understanding of love is tainted, is shaded with, with, with this stain of divorce. When I hear that God loves me unending, I hear that God loves me with, with, with a temporality, that it's situational, that it's circumstantial, it's fleeting. And yet God's word pushes us to understand reality through him, through what he's done. The gospel helps us understand as the gospel helps us understand that God's love is bound up with Jesus on a cross. He says it in verse 32. He connects it in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? God's unending love is bound up with what Jesus did on the cross. And what God did in sacrificing himself on the cross can't be undone. The eternal God gave of himself through death. And that can't be undone because the resurrection has happened. That's where it got connected in this passage. And what we see here, John Stott, kind of a pastor and preacher, captures this really well. I think the quote's going to be up here. Divine love triumphed over divine wrath 
by divine self-sacrifice. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. We see here in this passage, God's love is unbreakable, it's irrevocable, it's unending. Because it's bound up with what he's done through his son, Jesus Christ. So if our confidence is based on our experiences, then they might fail. Our confidence might fail. If our, if our confidence is based on the presence or the absence of suffering, then I fear that we may fail. And yet when we recognize that God is on our side of the aisle, that God is actually the one on the bench, that God has done everything he could possibly do in self-sacrifice through Jesus to make our love unending, then our confidence is wrapped up when, with God's word. And our confidence can rest assured in who he is and what he's done. Our text this morning has no imperative verbs. It has no commands, no prohibitions. It's no, there's no to-do list. Because the Holy Spirit wants us to see that while the bullets seem like they're still flying around our head, that we can rest in confidence. Our confidence can rest in the God who is for us forever. Let us pray. Lord God, we praise you for this word. Lord, we pray that it would affect our hearts. Lord, we pray that your spirit would apply it to us as we leave here today. And we pray, Lord, that we would live in the glory of your son, Jesus. We pray that we would live, as Romans 8.1 says, with no condemnation. Because you have not condemned us, you have declared us righteous in your son, Jesus. Lord, help us to live in that reality and recognize nothing we can do if we believe can separate us from your son, Jesus. Pray these things in his name. Amen.